Jonathan Walsh here. Welcome once again to, uh, believe it or not, round 20 of Don the Stat. Uh, sorry for a little for those listening live. Sorry, uh, a little bit late tonight. Got caught out by the uh, the Melbourne peak hour traffic. Um, seems there are plenty of people in and around the South Melbourne area to get home from the office. But uh, but here we are. Welcome as always uh, to my co-host Dan Hume. Humey, how are you going, mate? Yeah, I'm good. I, you know, round twenty is just you know it's it's it seems like it's flown by, but it also seems it's like it's taken forever. I guess when you're you're losing, you know, the weeks the weeks drag on a little bit. But yeah, and, and obviously coming off last week, you know, I probably wasn't as upset as I thought I would be, but still, it still hurts. Yeah, I I went through a, a range of emotions. It's funny, um, obviously, right after the siren, I was pretty shattered, uh, and then my mind went to, well, we've, yeah, this, this is the beast the AFL's created. My mind went to, well, we've protected our draft position, which is something that I never thought I would, I would feel. And then, yeah, got home, watched the replay, uh, which was a bad idea and um, felt really, really bad all over again. So yeah, it's been, uh, it's been an interesting week. Like you, you, there's a lot of things to take from that game to be positive about, but uh, obviously overshadowed by how poor we were in the first quarter and, and by what transpired and, well, probably the last five or six minutes in total, but but realistically, the last forty seconds or so. So, yeah, that's footy, isn't it, mate? It really does. Uh, it really does toy with your emotions. It does. You, you know, you go you go from one one extreme to another, and then back to back to that first extreme of, of the first feeling the same way in the first quarter. So, yeah, it, it it's a challenge, but we'll do our best to, to review it. I think being so far away from it, you know, we might be able to look at it a bit more objectively. Than if we'd done this uh, the night of the actual game. Yeah, I think so, mate. So, what um, what did you take from it? Look, I the, the first the first quarter was my was my worst nightmare, and I, I think we'll, we'll get into that. But before before the game, looking at looking at the stat lines and and what the team strengths were, that Essendon was always going to uh, win the clearance or do quite well at the clearance. And then it'd be how well they could play around uh, Collingwood's excellent intercept game. And that first quarter, they, you know, it, it was probably the worst worst case scenario of that playing out where they, you know, the, I think the stat was they went inside, you know, 11, 12, up to 15 times in that first quarter and didn't, and didn't have a touch in that entire time. So I think that that whole first quarter was, was, was a nightmare, but, you know, I think it's it's a it's a credit to the to the team and to the and to the coaching staff that they were able to to adjust. You know, in, in the space of a, a five minute quarter time break, and it was quite clear when they came out in the second quarter that they had realised what they were doing wrong and and had adjusted well. And that once they had done that, Collingwood had very little answer. Yeah, no, spot on. Uh, we've sort of got the, the the first quarter and the turnaround on the run sheet a little bit lower, but. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I guess we'll touch on that then. But yeah, I think that's a, a, yeah. My sentiments were were much the same, mate. So I think yeah, going into the game, we and when we did our preview last week, we we identified that contested ball was going to be king, and, and it has been for us for you know really since that that horrendous loss against the Swans in round nine. So uh, yeah, we we identified that um, this that the Pies have been pretty even in their games. They've had a lot of close games, haven't they? So there there wasn't a lot of difference in in terms of their performance across wins and losses so uh yeah and in that first quarter we we lost the contested ball albeit by only by three so it wasn't a huge loss um and then we lost it in the last quarter as well so uh, and lost it by eight um and the, probably the most disappointing thing with that with with about eight minutes to go in that last quarter contested ball for the quarter was even so we really did get smashed up around the ball a lot of a lot of focus has obviously been on that last kick in but um, and 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 probably the the one before that too, where where Carmichael was able to get on the end of one and score a goal. But uh, we really did drop off at the contest, and Pies the Pies were able to get on top. So you know, overall, we we did win the contest, uh, and, and we we outperformed against Collingwood's overall. So we won it by thirteen for the game, but uh, and and Collingwood's overall differential was minus four in their wins. So we were, oh, sorry, overall for the season and, and in their wins, they broke even. So, you know, over the course of the game, we got the job done that we needed to do. But uh, yeah, certainly weren't able to sustain that you know, across four quarters, definitely not in, in quarter one and definitely not in the last eight minutes of the game. Yeah, and we, we identified with, with the way Caldwell's been playing and targeting 
certain players that we we initially wanted him to go to Adams and we thought with the return of Adams, he was their, their best available clearance player. And then if Corwell could limit him again, it would, it would take away some of Collingwood's impetus. And it, it, it seemed that Corwell sort of bounced a little bit between uh, Adams and Pendlebury, but he, he probably spent more time on Pendlebury. And, you know, up until, up until the last minute, Pendlebury probably had one of his least productive games against Essendon uh, that I can recall. So, Caldwell did a great job from that point of view. Yeah, he, he really did. I I think it's the right call, isn't it? Pendlebury played much more midfield time than what he has throughout the season. He's been playing a lot of footy off half back and then effectively pinch hitting in the midfield a, a bit like Stringer does for us, really. That uh, uh, yeah, he he started in the midfield and, and played most of the game there and only had sixteen disposals. I went back and, and did a check. He's only had sixteen or less in four games since two thousand and ten. Uh, and one of those was his last game last year where he went off early injured. So you can kind of put a, a line through that one. And so is that, the, sorry, when you say under 16, is that against Essendon or? or no, no, no. That's, his, that's across his career. So Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Every, every game that he's played since 2010, he's only had, he's had 16 or fewer only four times. So like he's, he's a remarkably consistent footballer and, and, probably one of the best that I've seen in terms of the gap between his best and worst. So yeah, yeah. Four, four, just four times since 2010, you know, near on 12 seasons of footy, he's, uh, he's had 16 disposals or less. So uh, incredible effort, I think, by Caldwell to, to keep him to those. And of the 16 he did have, um, one of them was a kick in, which obviously was, was really effective, but uh, uh, he also had four turnovers and his efficiency was below 70. So um, 70%. So, yeah, he's a player that dominated us over the years and, and we were able to, to, or Caldwell was able to make sure that he didn't really have an influence. The consequence of it was that Taylor Adams probably did then become their best midfielder. And look, you, you take 28 from um, from Adams and 16 from Pendlebury any day of the week rather than the reverse. So it's the right call, but he, he did, um, you know, he had seven clearances for the game and, and had 28 disposals, albeit 20 of them were handballs. So, you know, he, he was the one that influenced, but, you know, someone was going to. So uh, we won centre clearances in the end, 13 to 9. Um, and, you know, we were 5-2, five, we funnily enough, in the first quarter. So we won, won our fair share of centre clearance. We just weren't able to get the ball into dangerous positions. We won stoppages by by plus 11, which was a really big win. You know, we've, we've really been struggling in that part. We've, we've been getting games closer to level or, or having small wins there, but a plus 11 result was, uh, I think, might just have been just about been the high or second high for the season. And probably the biggest one, ac- across the competition, teams averaged 31.5 points per game from stoppages. And, and the Pies across the season averaged 20. 29.5 points against them from stoppages. So they, they've been able to be slightly better than the competition average. We scored 50 points in the game from stoppage. So it was certainly a, a part of the game that we were able to to generate a lot of score and, and have a big influence from. So I think that, yeah, our, our clearance work, our stoppage work and the, the influence Caldwell had on on Pendlebury was, was probably the biggest win for us to take away from the game. Absolutely. As you say, stoppage, stoppage is our real weakness area in terms of if you if you look at the two areas of clearance and uh, I think definitely think there's been improvement this year and that as you as you say if if that can be you know more than maybe not the norm but more along those lines in the future it gives us a big chance of uh, being successful in the future and another thing that we identified from Collingwood's losses this year was how many more marks they would concede inside 50 so in their wins, they generally concede nine a game, whereas that was out to 16 a game in their losses. And we, we, we had actually had 17 against them in Anzac Day, and that was a day that we, we couldn't quite convert, and they, they managed to kick most of their shots. So we, we, we talked about separating the forwards and, and using all our targets. And how do you think that played out then? Yeah, we, I mean, we had 11 marks inside 50, which is more than what they they typically concede when they win a game. So we, you know, from a pure statistical KPI perspective, we, we, you know, we, we did more than, than what we, the numbers would suggest we needed to, to win a game. Um, yeah, we, we missed some gettable shots, obviously. And I think ultimately in the first quarter, 
um, which again we'll touch on in a sec. It, it probably cost us four or five marks inside mm-hmm. fifty just through really bad delivery. Uh, was it was it Guelphie? I think missed Langford, kicked the ball out on the full. It was one where Shield turned it over where he had a target. So yeah, there were you know four or five might be a little bit generous, but there were probably three or four genuine opportunities in that first quarter where we should have been able to take a mark inside fifty and hit a target and, and have a shot on goal, which might have got us up to you know fourteen, fifteen, and and ultimately giving us an opportunity to kick a winning score that we just weren't able to get right. Absolutely. Yeah, the one the one that Guelphy kicked and, and missed Langford completely, I think that's it. that really set the tone for the first quarter. And yeah, as as you say, it, it probably did we probably did miss out on, on some easier opportunities there to, to get shots on goal. Uh, another thing, obviously in the lead up to the week, the, the big story for Collingwood was Nick Dacos coming off his uh, forty disposal three goal game against Adelaide and I think you know, a lot of the commentary in the media was to tag, was to tag Dacos, and yet it's not something that we we seem to do. What was your thoughts on how we handled him as a post? So obviously we didn't go with the hard tag. How do you think we played him to keep him down? Yeah, I I think our, our point last week was, you know, you can't tag or, or stop everyone, can you? Someone's going to pop out, and Dacos, Nick Dacos, well, both of them, but but Nick's a, a really dangerous player, and and drives a lot of their forward movement. But we did identify that he wasn't one that typically won the ball back and started score launches. So we, we kind of wanted to stop the source. He he had seven disposals in the first quarter and he had eight in the last. So a, a bit like the game itself, really, when the pies were, were up and about and dangerous and we were off the boil, he was he was getting involved and, and, and having an impact. The first quarter was really interesting. So... We we mentioned last week that um, for the last three games, now four games, Merritt has started at half forward and Stringer started in the midfield. And then they, they effectively swap once the ball gets into general play. Stringer pushes forward, Merritt becomes the, the, the third midfielder. And so Dacos was starting on the Merritt matchup. And, and we've seen at, at times, even the Swans game is a good example there was real confusion by the opposition, but um, and and real confusion on, from Dacos's behalf on where to go. But what it did do was it, it ended up that he was unopposed for a large chunk of that quarter, and it was a little bit of Russian roulette. And because we were using the ball so poorly and 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 weren't winning enough contested ball, it just meant that Dacos was on his own and able to get involved and um, and and use it and, and hurt us. And then I think after quarter time we adjusted uh, Snelling put a fair bit more time onto him and, and he really got his tackling game up to the levels that we were used to seeing last year and and took his influence away in the middle two quarters. So he had 21 for the game. As I mentioned, he had seven in the first and, and eight in the last. So those middle two quarters, he he, basically, he barely had a touch, just had the four score involvements, which was, I think you pointed out, 11th for most for Collingwood. So, yeah, we kept him out of dangerous spots, but when they were up and about, he was up and about and... Um, and had an impact. So, yeah, like the game really made it was a tale of the two halves, really. Yeah, and I guess going going back to that first quarter, which which I've already touched on, because as I said, it was playing out as, as sort of the worst nightmare or the worst possible scenario for how we thought the game was going to go. So, what from your point of view, then what particularly went wrong, and then what was the adjust what was the adjustments made in order to avoid making the same mistakes as the first quarter? Yeah, I, I think besides not winning enough contested ball, which as we keep saying, has been the 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 real turning point of our season and, and been where we've yeah, where where we've built our game upon. Uh, we didn't keep our shape forward of the ball and and because we weren't I guess it's a, that became a double edged sword. Because we weren't winning enough contested ball, we weren't getting enough inside fifties and when we were we weren't getting them deep enough. Um it just created a, a real imbalance ahead of the footy that the stringer and merit handover wasn't as slick as it usually is because there wasn't, uh, there wasn't a real handover point. Uh, and then we had, we had periods of the game where they were both or, or that quarter where they were both running around the midfield. Um, and then our half forwards were also getting drawn up the ground. Uh, you know, kick chasing is probably a little bit unfair, but th- that's what it felt like uh, watching it live. Selling was a good example of that, um, where he just came up the ground and tried to get involved and, and tried to win some footy. And what that did mean was that we were effectively only playing with, 
you know, three and or four forwards, and that had a flow on impact. Really similar to what we we saw early in the year is a bit. Uh, we were a bit falling back into some bad habits, I think. So it, it's what then caused stagnant ball movement because there weren't targets forward of the uh, of the footy, and and when we were looking up um, to go forward, the Pies had extra men behind the ball, and then when we did eventually go inside 50 it was often shallow entries and, and we'd turn it over and you know we've, we've spoken about a couple of examples easy and that just made it really easy for the pies to rebound they had extra men they could overlap we weren't putting pressure on the ball and then it just came out really easily of our back our back 50 and and you know our, our forward half of the ground and then i think the fix at quarter time was was a pretty simple one we just we improved our contested ball rate first and foremost uh, and then we just held our forwards and, and that allowed us to get the ball deeper inside 50. And, and when you're getting deeper entries, it means two things. One, you're, you're obviously getting the ball close to the goal and, and you're giving your forwards scoring opportunities in more dangerous parts of the ground. It also means that when you do turn the ball over or the opposition do intercept mark, you're doing it closer to our goal and you're able to set up behind the footy and you're in a much better position to pin them in and, and, and put forward pressure on. We ended up with 13 inside 50 tackles for the game, um, which was you know, really, really high. And, and that now puts us fourth in the AFL since round 10 for, for inside 50 tackles. So I think that commitment, that part of our game, despite the fact that we don't have a genuine, you know, we've lost Tipper and, and he hasn't been there. Guelphie, I think, has done an outstanding job. And Snelling, at least off the ball and, and from a defensive perspective, is back to his old self on the weekend. So I think, yeah, we we just made that adjustment to get back to what we'd been doing well over the previous five or six weeks. And, and yeah, no surprise that that was what enabled us to get back into the game. Yeah, as, as you say, we've, we've been asking about, well, we've been looking at Snelling and, and how long it's taken him to get back. And you obviously he's still got issues with his, with his disposal and, and maybe some of his decision-making. But, you know, that, that pressure that we, we've been lacking because partly because he's been out uh, and... Also, as you say, with Tipper, you know it, it makes it makes the game so much easier to to control when you have that when you have that pressure. Uh, I mean, yeah, if you you actually pointed out something interesting to me when you were doing our, our stat data, and it's not about Essendon, but uh, Melbourne. Uh, when you were looking at Melbourne stats from the Bulldogs game, they actually had no uh, inside fifty tackles that game. So, and you know that that's probably the difference between them winning and losing their game. Um, but yeah, I guess. But we'll move on from we'll move on from that, and we'll move to the the big talking point. Obviously, you know, for most of the week, it's other other than people talking about Ginevan in a headlock. Uh, the big talking points being that last play, and you know, coming coming straight out of it, there was a lot of heavy criticism of Essendon structures and setups, which I think a lot of it comes from the fact that across the year we've been one of the poorer sides at allowing uh, teams to go end to end from kickouts. Uh, you know, a lot of talk about structures, a lot of talk about you know players setting up to celebrate with with Jones after the after the kick there. I think you know if you if you've been paying attention to some of the work that you've done on Twitter and and particularly the work of uh, sorry uh, Ricky Mangitis on on Twitter, he he really did a really good job of breaking down that that last kick in and, and just the things that went wrong. You know I think there's a lot to be said about that one where it's less about the structure and more about the individual decisions of both Essendon and Collingwood players there that led to that result. I think Collingwood had to execute everything perfectly as well as some Essendon players making some small mistakes that start to cascade. So what were your thoughts having a chance to to really look into it? Because you you did a bit of work as well, looking at more than just that last kick out. Yeah, I... Yeah, Ricky. Um, if you don't follow him, I mean, he's a he's a North supporter, and and a lot of what he does focuses on North. But he does talk about most games, and he's got a really good analytical and, and football brain. So yeah, definitely give him a follow if you if you're keen on the more analytical side of the game. And and he did a really good job of breaking it down. And um, and yeah, I, I mean, I don't I don't have much to add to to what he said. But I, I guess basically the summary of it was. It wasn't that we didn't set up, and I think the the point that was made on the first crack about our our midfielders getting ready to celebrate Jones's goal is is to be honest, I think it's pretty insulting. Uh, but 
you know, these guys are professional footballers. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen, you know, we, we've all seen footballers on the field where they they perhaps don't put in an effort or they don't work hard enough. But, uh, you know, honestly, I don't think I've ever in my time watching football seen someone go, you know what, it's a close game and, and there's a minute to go. I'm I'm just going to go and high-five someone instead of setting up. I think that's, that's really poor analysis. And then even the slow-down footage of showing them walking towards Jones – what I did to sanity check myself because my view of that was just they had to set further back because they couldn't go into the restricted area where Jones was taking his shot. And Jones was pretty much kicking from right where they would normally set up. So they, they sat back as Jones walked in to take his shot. Our mids moved forward to get into their spot where they would normally set up their zone, keeping in mind that for the last five or six weeks, we've typically gone man on man against midfielders which is exactly what happened in that last kick-in. So to sanity check myself and make sure I wasn't imagining things, I did go back and watch all of our kick-ins from set shots in the first, in the second half, sorry. Um, so, and exactly the same thing happened. They, they were set up in exactly the same spot. So they were all where you would expect them to be. Now, whether that's right or wrong wasn't really the point I was trying to make on Tuesday night. I guess I was just trying to make the distinction to our fans or at least give them some data points to make their own mind up against the commentary that was shared on, on Sunday night post-game that, you know, unfortunately people buy into and, and get, um, you know, really react to and get ultra-sensitive to. So I just wanted to, I, I guess, provide a bit more analysis. But I think ultimately what happened, mate, was... A little bit of everything went right for Collingwood. I think that's the first distinction. Even the fact that the ball hit the post and didn't bounce back into the ground into play. Like so, even if that had have happened and there were two balls on the field, it, that would in itself would have slowed the play down and allowed Wright to get from where he was on the left hand side of as you're facing the goals on the left hand side of the the goal post to the right hand side or or, or central to to get to where Moore eventually ran to. Like so, yeah, Pies had some pretty extraordinary luck, albeit we made it easier for them to have that. So I think, yeah, first thing, Guelphie was on the wrong side, Wright was on the wrong side, and Moore ran into the space in the in the setup where you'd expect Langford as a half forward to have been set up. So I think the analogy I made to you was one of the challenges we've had all year has been one week link in the chain and then it just all cascades and breaks down from there in this situation we actually took a link out of the chain and moved it to the end so jones uh, sorry not jones langford came out of the zone or out of the setup and went to the back as the spare man but we didn't move the rest of the zone back to compensate for that we just left the hole in the middle of it and that's the spot that that moore was then able to run into and find space then we ended up with the next situation where Ham effectively had to make the decision to either come forward at more or stay with his man in Bianco. And and he made a really late decision to come to more, wasn't able to get to him and, and have any influence on that, and then obviously wasn't able to double back and get back to his man. And I think at that point, if he had a stayed... One of Ham's strengths, apart from his running ability, is his ability overhead for his size. And, and I reckon if we had a... If he had to roll back and stayed shoulder to shoulder with Bianco, it would have forced more to either kick to a one-on-one ham on Bianco and, and give Ham a chance to score. Even if Bianco marks and he holds him up, then it slows down the game and we get another chance. Um, or spoil the ball out of bounds. The other, or it would have forced more to go into the middle where there was congestion and contest, rucks, midfielders, etc. And that was, I should add, the one big difference between how Collingwood kicked in in that play than what they did earlier in the game. There was there was an example in the third quarter, which I did share uh, after the right set shot, I think, from memory. Uh, and they ran exactly the same play. Uh, the only difference was their, their Ruckman got across and, and because of that took Draper with him and we were able to intercept. In this play, their Ruckman stayed in the middle of the ground and, and, their, and all of their midfielders did. Uh, so anyway, yeah, Ham, Ham makes the decision. Ultimately the wrong one. And then... The, the flow-on effect with that was Zerk so Thatcher was then in doubt. Do I stay with Myacek? Do I get across? Where do I go? That then put doubt in Langford's mind. He makes a late decision to get across and and um, and try and compete against Elliot. Um, Bianco 
incredible field kick to spot that between Kelly and, and Langford and land in Elliot's feet and uh, lap. And then Elliot obviously nails the set shot. So, um, yeah, I, right set up, wrong set up. Uh, it's, it's the battle. I, we, we definitely should have had wing coverage. Langford going behind the ball was whether him or not, someone going behind the ball was the right decision. But someone needed to fill his spot in the zone. And, and ultimately, what should have happened, I think, is Wright should have came back. Guelphie should have come back. So we conceded the first 30 metres. But that allowed us to get more coverage through the middle third of the ground and slow their their play down from there. And then knowing we had set up and structure behind the ball. And uh, because we didn't have get that first part right, it became a cascading effect after that. Yeah, you know, it's just... It ends up being one of those, one of those things that... Hopefully, as as they said after the game, they they learn from that. And they don't. It's it's only bad if they they make that mistake again. I guess is yeah. is what I'm saying. And you know, if they if they get in in a situation maybe next year or the year after where they're they're playing for a, a final spot, they're in a final and they're in the same scenario because they've had this experience. They don't necessarily make that same mistake again. And you know, I think as long as as long as they don't, as I said, as long as you don't keep repeating the same mistakes, then you know you you can at least take something out of it. But I mean, I, I just also went back and, and also looked at their end-to-end scores because I think, as was pointed out, they scored three goals, one from uh, end-to-end scores from from kickouts, and they were all from they were all from set shot kickouts where we, we had an opportunity to set up just to get an impression about whether or not it seemed to be a structural thing or it was a an execution string from Essendon. So the first one uh, was the um, quarter th- uh, quarter three after a, a right set shot. Um, set it up so that Collingwood ended up taking it out to the wing and had a target on the wing where we had four players converging and should have spoiled. It was just ended up being a Collingwood kick that, that went long. They got out the back. I think they, they ended up with a, it was rushed through for a behind with Jinnabin setting up to the top of the square. So that one, I don't think is a setup problem. That was just, you know, the ball, you know, to quote Dane, Dwayne Russell's a bit of chaos ball with that one. There was the one uh, that ended with the Meyer check goal after Langford set shot where more, is looking to go long to the to the pack, but then finds how outside the outside our our forward fifty in the pocket. I think this is probably the one out of the four where I would would argue that it's a setup issue as opposed to a a execution issue. We had uh, Jones trying to cover the uh, player in the, the player in the forward pocket and how, and because he wasn't able to do both and more again, really good field kick to how, and as soon as. Uh, Will Hoskin Elliott sees that Howe's going to get it. He he breaks and he he gets five meters on his opponent. Howe hits him up without him, him having to break stride. He's then able to get on to Dacos, who finds Meyer check. So that's the one I would say is a structural issue, and that's something that, that should be looked at. And then there was the last one, which was to talk about, which you, you brought up, which was the Carmichael goal, where they went down the middle, got it to Crisp, and really the players should have been able to, to tackle Crisp and, and and stop him getting through. But he he works his way through and, and finds Carmichael. So. I would say out of the four end-to-end scores that they had, three of them, three of them were down to poor execution as opposed to poor setup. With that Carmichael one and Crisp in particular, uh, I can't remember who took the kick in. I think it was more he he feigned to go left and then ended up going right to Crisp. And and what Dillard Shield did, who was shoulder to shoulder with Crisp, was assumed that he was going to go less left, and he and he switched off for just a, a moment, and that allowed. Chris to change, change direction on him and allow more to change direction and to hit him up. So that option should never have been available to him. And you're right, that wasn't set up. That was just one player switching off for a, a tiny, tiny moment that gave an opening. And then we mistackled Chris, Chris twice, didn't we? There, there was mm. there was Shield and then there was Heckle uh, in the midfield. Both senior players, um, you know, effectively letting us down. And then Hobbs probably got a little bit exposed, didn't he? He... he sort of was a little bit lost um, trying to get back to defend Carmichael and, and Carmichael was over, able to bounce, uh, mark over the back of him. So you're right. that That's not an issue with setup. That's an issue with execution and, and don't have a problem with, with Hobbs. He'll, you know, he'll learn from that and, and get better. I, I do have a problem with Shiel and, and, um, and Heppel in that one. They, they needed to be a lot better. The, the one thing I wanted to add just to close this out, mate, um, uh, there's been, I guess, cr- warranted criticism about do, you know, shouldn't they, in, in relation to the last goal um, and, and that kick in, 
you know, a minute to go or less than a minute to go, they should they should know what to do. They should train for this. They should practice. Now, I'm I'm obviously not in the inside and and understand what they do or don't train on, but from my experience, these things do get do get trained a hell of a lot. The one thing that you can't plan for is what the opposition do. You you have a vague idea of what they're going to do in any given situation. And I think it was pretty clear that we we expected them to go down the middle. And that is what they did to score the Carmichael goal. So when they had to get, you know, they'd already proven in the game when they needed to get a quick goal, they they went down the middle. So I think that was what the plan was, was to try and, and concede the width of the ground, protect the corridor, play the percentages. Uh, but I think what we will do is we'll we'll adjust from this and, and make sure that going forward the next time Langford or whoever it is drops back behind the ball, that we make sure that that link in the chain is not removed and that we push that chain back. And then I think the other thing that we'll adjust and make sure we have right is that we have outliers because they actually had a winger ready to go on the other side as well. So regardless of which way it opened up and they went, they were going to be able to find a target on either side of the ground. So I think, um, yeah, I, I think just need to be mindful that you can't, whilst you do train for it, you do prepare for it, you do have plans in place. You've got a, we've got a game that's played in 360 degrees. So, uh, you know, there was an example of, of NFL that was thrown at me where, where they trained for these situations, but very, very different game. And, and we've got an opposition that's got 18 players on the ground and, and each one of them has a variable as well. So I think, yeah, it's, it's what we do from now and what we do the next time this, this arises that's, um, that's going to prove whether we're better for it or not. Absolutely. I think we've talked enough about the Collingwood game. I think, you know, we've done, we've done that to death, so we'll, we'll move on. Um, one thing that came up a couple of weeks ago, we were asked about the midfield mix and how, how we would balance it. And we, we decided to park it for when uh, players like Perkins and, and Parrish would come back. Well, Perkins seems to be back this week, and it, it sounds like Parrish will be available next week. So we'll just take a bit of a look in it. I have, uh, if you go to my Twitter feed, you'll see that I've, I've posted the stats of our centre bounce uh, attendances for the year. So I've gone back and, and logged all that and worked out the percentages. And, and today I also posted a chart about which the mo- who's the most effective at the centre bounce based on how many centre bounce centre clearances they win um, compared to their, their centre atten- um, centre bounce attendances. And as you pointed out on Twitter, that's not exactly a, you know, a great metric because it's, it's a, it's a four person, it's a four person uh, game in that in that scenario and you know the work that someone does off the ball may be just as important to winning the clearance as, as the person who gets credited for the clearance so it's not exactly any an exact science but if you, you look at the numbers it's uh shield shield and stringer being the most effective with about i think they win uh center clearance 18 percent of the time that they're they're at a center bounce and then it, it drops down to parish at 13 percent and then uh Merit merits a bit lower, and then McGrath, who obviously hasn't played in the centre for the last uh, few weeks, is around the same level as as Perkins and Hobbs, who are who are starting to get a bit more of that midfield time. And just sort of thinking, well, how 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 do you how do you structure it and, and how you balance it? So I thought I would look at uh, some of the best teams in the comp and how and how they do it. And the one that's the one that stands out to me for the most part is is the Bulldogs, uh, given that they're the best centre clearance side in the competition. They're obviously doing something right and they're doing also doing that without a dominant ruckman and sort of and sort of how how much time they have people spending in there and one of the things before we get on to that one of the things we identified you remember all the way back to the Fremantle game where in that third quarter they they got on top in in the center bounces and it's what really won them the game at that time was that we were we were running uh, very high percentages from from three from three midfielders and by the time they got to the third quarter they were just cooked and they weren't able to keep up the Fremantle side. And since since that game, we've actually done a better job at spreading the load uh, on that. But going going back to the Bulldogs, what they do, they they run a five man. If you if you take out the ruckman, they run a five man uh, rotation through their centre bounces. So McRae and Liver are both in the sort of seventy percent usually. Uh, Bont, Dunkley, and Smith. Are, <coughs> sorry, Dunkley and. And Bailey Smith are in the thought uh, in the fifty percent range. So they've got two two key ones. Although uh, sometimes it's Bont, sometimes it's McRae, and then they have three others that run through it. So just thinking along those lines, 
based on that, I, I would be thinking that the best rotation would be uh, Shield and Stringer both taking 70% uh, with Parrish, Caldwell, and then one of Hobbs or Perkins, or, or you split it between the two, taking 50, 50%. And I think that's what you point out with, with Merritt, that he's, he's him switching with starting on the forward 50 and switching with Stringer is, is a key is a key thing that we need to do to be successful because then it gets Stringer forward and, and Merritt back into the midfield where he can use his foot skills to deliver in there. But I guess the, the, the spanner in the works there is uh, Caldwell's been playing playing that lockdown lockdown role and against uh, against Brisbane. Sorry, so when he was on Neil, he 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 attended ninety seven percent against Gold Coast when he was running with Miller, he attended eighty one percent. So I, I guess it's a it's a balanced thing. So you know I. After looking at all, I thought I'd thinking about it, and when we were asked the question, I thought I'd be able to come out with a more definitive answer of, of what I thought the best makeup would be. And after going through all that, I can honestly say that uh, I probably had as about the same idea as I, I did going in. So I'm not sure how you know I put I put a lot of effort into that spreadsheet, but I'll, I don't sure how much I've actually learnt from it. So yeah, I don't know if you've got any thoughts to add there. <laughs> Analysis paralysis, mate. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think you're right. The the, the key thing that that's been a, a key pillar of our improvement is that we've got the balance a lot better. So early in the year when we just ran with Merritt, Shield, Parish, time and time again, we had three Seaball get ball players, and you know if they didn't win it, we were really exposed when the ball was coming out. So I think that that balance was really important. The Fremantle game. We saw Brody and Mundy really bash us up in the third quarter because they were really fresh. They they'd been, uh, you know, lower minutes, lower attendances. They they shared the load, and then uh, they were really able to to come in, come up against fatiguing midfielders in our case. And and you know, plus they had a size advantage, and they were able to really push them around. So, I think rotation and balance and sharing the load is is key. And then I think what we do between now and the end of the year as we get some players back or we get um, we get Parrish and we get uh, Perkins back is I guess we've got to have a bit of a balance between what gives us our, our best outcome for 2022 and what uh, allows us to develop and, and learn some things for 2023. So I think, you know, I'd, I'd be questioning whether there's any real value of playing Stringer in the midfield for the remainder of the year or do we just keep him forward? And and do we and give his his um his midfield or set of clearance attendances to uh, to Perkins and and let's see if Perkins can continue to develop his game because you know what we we want to make sure that we don't have happen as happened this year is that we lose that real dynamic person in the center clearance if Stringer's out injured next year so we want to make sure that Perkins can continue to build and develop that capability so I, I think that'd be one thing that I'd be looking at let let's keep keep Stringer forward and, and give some more minutes to to Perkins in the midfield. And, and I think what that could mean for next year is that we see Stringer stay forward more permanently and come into the midfield as much more of a, a real impact player. And and we have seen that at a couple of times this year, haven't we? There was there's a couple of games recently where he only went in sort of, uh, you know, four or five times and we were able to win those games. So I think Gold Coast, he was only, he only attended three centre bounces back in the St Kilda game was, it was down to 11. So, um, so yeah, it, it was a bit more, uh, it was a bit higher as 19 on, on the weekend against the Pies uh, and Merritt was down to nine. So yeah, I think, I think how we use that is, is going to be interesting to see. And then um, the other one that I'd be looking at is how we use, how we use Hobbs and what we can get out of him for the rest of the year. And, you know, I, I talk about it a little bit more when we talk about North, but I think there's an opportunity this week to use him in a different way and, and learn something there. Uh, but my view is you can't have too many midfielders. You can't have too many good ones. You just have to get the balance right. So I, I'm not one who's um, buying into the, we should trade Parrish. Uh, I think we should keep him, find a role for him, bring him back and play him half forward, <laughs> ironically, uh, and, and see whether he can continue to add that to his game. And, and get him to rotate and wax with um, with uh, with merit and yeah I, I think just just continue to, to play with that balance and experiment and, and see what we get so I, I, I'm like, I'm with you I think having said all of that and looked at all the data I don't think there's any right and wrong with this I think it's just 
the horses, of course, is against different opponents. It's using this year to experiment and, and get some, some <laughs> I was going to say learnings uh, or lessons, um, but um, yeah, to, to understand some further capabilities like we have with Caldwell, what other, um, what other, you know, tools do we have at our disposal that we haven't yet found? And uh, and and go from there, and and then I think it becomes a nice problem to have in twenty twenty three if we've got too many midfielders, and you know if that means that Hobbs needs to run around in the VFL for a few games next year as a midfielder to to win his side, to win his game back, or Perkins does, or someone else does, or you know, sorry, um, Jake Stringer, we're we're not going to rush you back in if you're not fit. Then yeah, it's all a nice problem to have. Absolutely, absolutely. So I guess before we get to start looking at the North game, we're going for 40 minutes already. We haven't even touched North yet. Just quickly, earlier announced today was this re-signing of three players. So Wanganine for two years and Boston Phillips for one year. So uh, all good signings. I think I know there was talk that maybe Phillips had to be talked into going around this year. Um, so I was a bit worried that, you know, he, this might have been his last year. But, you know, I think... I think he's, he does enough and he, he provides really good support for Draper. And if he left, you'd have to go get a experienced Ruckman anyway. So you, you might as well keep someone you, you can depend on with that. Uh, I think Voss has been quite exciting in the last couple of weeks in the, in the VFL. He's showing, he's showing a lot and might be a sneaky chance for a debut before the end of the season. And then Wanganeen, we obviously haven't seen for uh, a few weeks now, but you know, obviously if the, if the club's given him two years straight out, They've obviously seen enough to know that there's something to work with there. Yeah, I, I think Texas got some some special abilities uh, without wanting to pump him up or put pressure on him. Uh, he's obviously, you know, he carries a, a big name on his on his back, and, and that's a he- heavy burden to carry. But I, I think he's got some really unique qualities with the way that he's able to to get the ball and, and move through traffic and and find the goals that. You know, once he gets some size about him and and a proper preseason, you know, uh, as well. Given, I know he was he was at the club for the entirety of, of this preseason, but he had some injury concerns. So, I yeah, I think you know that that's really exciting news, and uh, you know, it's it's pretty tantalising to think that if the Davies come and they develop to into players that we think they might be that. You know, in a couple of years' time, we could have a, a Wanganeen and a couple of Davies running through our, our midfield and, and half-forward lines that, that could really terrorise buyers. Uh, Patrick Boss is, yeah, he's really exciting. His strength and power is is pretty phenomenal, mate. I think he, um, I know I know he's got an underlying um, uh, fitness base that, that's pretty strong, but he obviously missed a, a fair bit of footy with a, a foot injury that, that would have slowed him down. So I think if we can see him get that fitness level up and be able to, to impact more contests. He's, yeah, he's going to be pretty exciting. And I think you nailed it with Phyllis, mate. He's, he's done a great job. He's, he's clearly a quality person. The footage that was on social media earlier in the week of him training with the AFLW team and helping them out, you know, all signs of a really strong and quality club person. So, yeah, I think it, it's good news. We're going to keep him for another year. Excellent. As, as I said, you know, love, love seeing people recommit to, to the club. Uh, so we're going to move on to, to North and we'll start with selection. So for Essendon, a few wins this week, obviously with the extended bench. Uh, Perkins is back after one game back in the VFL. Uh, also named is Stuart, uh, D'Ambrosio and Brian, uh, as well as Menzi has been named, although I doubt usually they will announce, pre-announce someone's going to be debuting before uh, teams are selected. So I think it might just be a, a bit of a you know boost for him to be named in the extended squad. Uh, out, uh, Brayton Ham's omitted uh, completely, not even on the extended bench, and uh, McGrath with health and safety. So, bit, you know, a bit annoying with McGrath. He's, he's struggled to get consistency uh, this year with, with a few injuries. And, you know, now, especially now that I think we've, we've settled on where he, where he is going to play his best footy for the rest of his career, you know, you want to get, you want to get that consistency and working with the back line. There, any any particular things stand out from you from the selections there? Yeah, just one thing um, with McGrath out and D'Ambrosio, you would imagine like for like comes back. I know he's played forward the last couple of weeks, but you'd imagine he'd come back in and, and fill McGrath's spot in, at half back. It, I would assume that means they're pretty confident that Redmond's going to get up and be fit to play because there's no obvious uh, half back replacement unless it was 
you know, Heppel goes back um, and and plays half back, and, and someone else comes in and plays wing or or in an in an alternate position. So you know, maybe that's a bit of a sign that they're confident that Redmond would play. And and if he does, that's a pretty. I mean, it says a lot about his character and and courage if he does, because that was a massive hit um, or you know a collision. So yeah, I think that one probably stands out. Um, yeah, good to see Archie Perkins back. And I think the other thing we can assume is that unless there's a query over Draper or Phillips that we're not going to see Nick Bryan because we we wouldn't play, wouldn't imagine we'd play three Ruckman. So uh, we could probably, yeah, put a roll through him, put a line through him. Yeah. And then, well, it's, it's a, oh, yeah it's, no, that's all right. Just looking at the extended bench and again, you know, I don't think it's a, it's a rule anymore that they've got to select the, the final four from the extended bench. You would have, you know, up to last week, you would have thought Snelling was the one on the cusp. But I think he's, as as he sort of pointed out, his defensive effort was up again. And I think they want to give him, you know, a bit more opportunity to get back to where he was last year. It's interesting to think about who potentially is going to be uh, left out of, of that extended bench. Uh, you know, you if you're going to play the second Ruckman in, in Phillips, you, you're going to have one of uh, Perkins, Hobbs, Martin or D'Ambrosio, you, you would assume as your sub. Uh, I know that, that they wanted to have Hobbs as sub a couple of weeks back and maybe they've decided that it's it's the time to do that now with, with Perkins coming back. But I just think it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, when we find out the team tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the Roos have got four outs, don't they? So they've had three guys with health and safety protocols. Aaron Hall, who's a big loss for them. He's their most probably their most dangerous user off half-back. Aiden Kaur, who's who's had an up-and-down season, but he's probably their second uh, key key defender. Uh, Paul Curtis has been kicking some goals lately and and Flynn Perez is out. And, you know, amongst their ends are are probably some guys that we're not overly familiar with. Josh Walker's been around for a long time. Kane Turner, I think he debuted against us a number of years ago, didn't he? Um, But, you know, he's a a high-pressure small forward that we've seen before. But uh, you've got a, a bit of a personal story about one of their potential debutants, mate. Oh, yeah. So the... Their mid-season draftee, the person they, they picked ahead of uh, our pick, which was our D'Ambrosio pick, uh, Callan Dawson, a uh, intercepting halfback, had been playing for Williamstown. Uh, he's actually a former student of mine. I, I taught him uh, legal studies at Williamstown High School. And this was, this was back in 2015-16. Uh, uh, so that's when, he, that's when he would have graduated from high school. So he's come about it, he's come about it a long way to get to football. He hasn't obviously gone the, the direct route, but... He's obviously worked really hard and and worked on worked on his game and, and made himself valuable to a to an AFL side. So I'll, I'll be wishing him well and you know hopefully he's able to pull off a few uh, few good plays, but not too many as well. Hopefully, yeah. Uh, well, hopefully you taught him to kick, mate, because I've seen your foot skills and they're not great. So if he's if he's no, followed I, you, that, no, yeah. I had nothing to do with his football, which is probably why okay. he's on an AFL list. So there yeah, you go. Makes sense. Makes sense. All right, and and you've done some. Some looking into North this week, mate. So, what do you what do you make of them? Well, you know, you're dealing with the you're dealing with the bottom side. So, when you start looking into their stats, you know, there's, there's not going to be much pleasant reading. Um, so, I mean, if you just go through their their entirety of their season, so their their inside fifty differential is minus twenty per game. So, that's the worst in the league. So, they can see twenty more inside fifties than than they get themselves. So, if you're doing that, you're not going to be in a position to uh, be winning too many games. Their centre clearance work is is pretty okay. It's 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 low down in the rankings, but it's only minus zero point seven six, and that's without you know obviously their best centre clearance player in Cunnington. So I think that's a pretty good result for them. But in terms of stoppage clearances, they're they're second last at minus two point four. And if you go into some of the other differentials, so they've got the second worst contested possession differential and the worst uncontested possession differential, uh, the worst mark differential, uh, the second worst tackle differential, and the worst inside. Uh, 50 tackle differential and yeah another key point that I've, I've really started to pay attention to is the intercepts and they've got the worst intercept differential so you know pretty abysmal stat wise so what I then did was I thought I would go and look at results and if you if you think back to the last few weeks that the Collingwood and then the Richmond games have probably been North's most consistent games for the year they did beat West Coast earlier in the year when when West Coast were quite were quite poor, but you would, if you're a North supporter, you'd be most pleased with the Collingwood Richmond games. And so the way they the way they won those games, so they they won center clearances against Collingwood by nine, and against Richmond they won the stoppage clearances by eleven. So again, pretty good results. But 
if you look a bit closely at, at Collingwood and Richmond in those areas, uh, Collingwood's the worst centre clearance side. Sorry, Collingwood is the second worst centre clearance side in the competition, and Richmond are the worst stoppage clearance side. So they won they won those quite well, but they were going up against uh, some of the lower ranked teams in those areas. Whereas if you, you think about where Essendon is at for that, where Essendon's six for centre and thirteenth for stoppage, so uh, and those numbers are a lot higher in the last uh, ten rounds since since the Sydney game. So areas that they did well in, in against Collingwood and Richmond are areas that we would consider to be uh, our strengths. They also won the contested possession and uncontested possession against both Collingwood and Richmond. Uh, and Collingwood and Richmond are, are 14th and around the 14th mark for both of those stats. So again, not not it's not strengths of both sides uh, that North beat them in. Uh, Essendon is uh, seventh for contested possession differential and second for uncontested possession differential since round 10. So again, areas areas that they did well against Collingwood and Richmond are areas in which we're strong at. So it, they're not by the stats and if, if Essendon play to the potential that they've been playing for the last 10 weeks they're not they're not going to have the same opportunity against Essendon that they did against Collingwood and Richmond so I guess you you've looked a bit closer at, at the tactics there what have you what are your thoughts going into this game yeah I, I think the other thing that happened in in that Richmond game too is the Tigers kicked 11 goals 22 for the game so they you know North uh, played you know a really good game and, and they got what almost 30 points out um, up sort of the halfway through the second quarter before Richmond started to come back but uh, and got in front in the last quarter and, and North did a, a great job to come back and, and win the game and it was a pretty exciting finish to the match but you know really I think if they were honest and Richmond were honest uh, I think most people watching that game would have thought that, that Richmond probably should have won that game quite comfortably but yeah, I, I think it's an interesting challenge for us this week, mate. I'm, I'm really curious to see how we respond after the disappointment of last week and and the, the how mature the the group is in how they bounce back from that. Uh, you know, the, you can't really talk about making a statement when you're 14th on the ladder. Uh, we're not in a position to do that. But I think this does give us a bit of an opportunity to make something of a statement in how we approach the game, given that we're, we're coming up against... You know, we've been playing some really good footy and playing some good footy against teams that are a lot higher on the ladder than than obviously North Melbourne are. So I think uh, I think yeah, I'm really curious again to see how we approach this and and whether we can really get ourselves up and and put a bit of a stamp on this game to to yeah sort of prove that we're capable of learning from last week, bouncing back and refocusing on the job at hand. So the first one for me is not so much a, a, a tactic, but it's I think it's more of a KPI. North are equals seventh in the AFL for number of turnovers. So in terms of the, the, the number of times they turn the ball over. And they're 18th in the AFL for forcing the opposition to turn over. So they, they concede the seven most, most but they they force the least. Uh, so I, I really want to see our, our press and our forward pressure at its best that it's been this season. So we... We generate, on average, 64 turnovers a game. Collingwood are number one in the AFL at 75 and, and North themselves concede 69 and a half. So I want to see us up at 75 plus or North Melbourne having 75 or more turnovers. So really lift our pressure and, and see how that stacks up against a side that's got similar levels of experience where, you know, we're only four spots ahead of them on the ladder. Um, they averaged 80 games of experience last week. We were at 82. So we took it up to a team that's fourth on the ladder. They lost to a team that's, uh, what, 13th on the ladder. So we, uh, yeah, I, I really want to see that turnover number at the end of the game be over over 75. So, you know, 20 a quarter uh, would be the, the KPI I'd be hoping that we're striving for. Uh, secondly, I, I do want us to continue with the midfield game. I don't think that Millfield, Millfield tag, I don't think this is the game where you want to go, oh, we're only playing 18th, let's ease, ease off on that and do something else. But what I would do different is I'd send Hobbs to Luke Davies Uniac. I'd, I, for two reasons. One, Coldwell's a player who's obviously had some, some injury challenges. So give him an opportunity to, to play a bit more as a general midfielder, maybe spend a bit more time, um, you know, lower lower minutes on ground and, and rotate through. And let's see whether that's something that Hobbs can add to his game and offer us going forward because we've we've demonstrated over the last month that it is a key pillar of 
of our game and what we want to do going forward. But we want to have a backup if, you know, Caldwell gets injured in a game and, and someone else needs to do a job um, or, or he's unavailable. So, yeah, I, I think uh, I think it's a good opportunity to see that. And we know if, if LDU gets away that we've still got Caldwell in the team and we can make that switch if we need to. Um, I know you, you did hypothesise that Hobbs might be uh, the sub, but... If it's not him, then Perkins would would be the other one I'd send there. And and I think the other thing to recognise is that Davis Uniaki is a really really good footballer. Uh, probably doesn't get talked about all that much given that he's playing for the 18th ranked side. But he, he's their number one for score involvement. He's number two for score launches. He's second for clearances, just behind Jai Simpkin. So yeah, he's he's a really important midfielder for them and and a very very good one. So uh, he's the one that I'd be trying to restrict and. And if we can do that, that'll help set up the rest of our clearance and contested game. Larky and Zerha, I think we really need to get those matchups right and not allow them to have an influence because they're real barometers for them. They're both quite plucky um, in different ways. Larky, you know, is quite energetic and enthusiastic and, and Zerha's got a real sort of attitude and, and sticks that chest out and, and likes to throw his weight around. So I think, you know, Ridley and Laverde are the matchups that uh, I, I think are the right ones there. Um, Laverde should be able to get Zerha for, for, you know, compete with him in terms of size and, and, and in the air. And I think Ridley ha- has shown again over recent weeks that he's really good on those mobile, uh, more mobile marking forwards and has the ability to, to, to lock them down and, and beat them and also work off them to intercept. And then last but not least, uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about the work that, that Jones has been doing to to give Peter Wright more access to the footy and more one-on-ones. I think this week it's a, it's the opportunity to, to probably switch that around a little bit. I'm assuming that Wright's going to get the Ben McKay matchup and it's probably not that often Peter Wright's drawn a guy who can get him for size. So, you know, McKay's 201 centimetres, he's pushing a hundred kilos and he'd probably prefer Wright to stay deep on him and to try and mark and, or yeah, jump and mark. Uh, so I think we really want to see Wright getting up the ground more and, and even if that means sacrificing his own impact on the scoreboard because what it will do is it will allow us to isolate uh, Harry Jones and, and Stringer on the on Lockie Young and, and Aidan Bonner who are their second and, and third tours and you know, Bonner's someone who's who's undersized in that role as it is. So I think, yeah, that that's my other one, mate, is is right to get on his bike and really run McKay around and, and get him up the ground and, and try and isolate Young and, and Bonner with uh, with Jones and Stringer and, and try and create some scoring opportunities through them. Excellent. Well, well, we'll see how that plays out again, obviously, on the, the graveyard shift of uh, Sunday 4.40. Uh, before we get to our final thought, uh, we have had a request to speak, and it's our uh, becoming our regular correspondent, Vince, uh, so Vince, uh, thanks for jumping on. Uh, what, uh, do you have a question or you've got a comment for us? Yeah, just a couple of quick comments, guys. Thanks again for a fantastic hour while I was cooking the, uh, cooking the fish and the mashed potatoes. Um, fantastic, uh, commentary about the midfield, but I really think Parrish is in there. I don't want to see him going into the forward line again. I think he's got to be, you know, bursting through the centre like he was doing really well and just working on the, the foot disposal once he's got the ball. Um, the second thing is, did you see how Myocek pulled down Redman in that dreadful contest? And after he'd lost the contest, um, he sort of grabbed hold of Redman and pulled him to the ground and then had a crack at his face on the way down. thought it was pretty grubby and he was pretty lucky to get away with a, um, without some sort of sanction to that. The other thing I wanted to comment on, which you mentioned, was the re-signings. And, um, you know, those of us who might have seen my comments about Andrew Phillips, the big Tasmanian, I'm really, really pleased to see him get re-signed for a year because I think he's made a huge difference to the balance um, in the side. And when he's in the team, it seems to be... I think you guys might have had a half half a crack at doing this, but you might want to try and see at some point over the next few weeks what sort of impact he's had in the games that he's played in terms of our, our win-loss. And certainly he has helped no end, I think, Draper um, uh, Draper's development this year and giving Draper the opportunity to work on his game when he's not in the ruck. And that's where Draper's huge improvements have been this year. 
and I think it's it's been Phillips who's been able to help him do that. So, yeah, fantastic. Thanks for letting me have a crack. No worries, Vince. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I, the my I, I saw what you saw with the my check one, and I was I was worried because I think we've seen that a lot in slow mo, and sometimes things look a lot worse in slow mo. And when you've got you know people flying it everywhere, you know, I've, I've sort of probably given my check in my own thoughts the benefit of the, de- of the doubt there that wasn't you know an intentional intentional move. So mm. I'm hoping it's I'm hoping it's that. But the umpire did pay a free kick, didn't he? I'm pretty sure. No, he paid the free kick, not a mark. I thought he paid the mark, but look, um, I think you are giving him the benefit of the doubt. In in real time, there's no doubt in my mind that Majek knew he'd lost the contest and he was just trying to spoil and spoil dirty on the way down. And, you know, I think he was lucky to get away with, if it was a free kick paid, he was lucky to go get away with just that sanction. Um, no excuses about the rest of the game. It was a fabulous game to watch and it was just a shame we lost. Um, but really happy for Elliot, you know, being able to finish off like that. That was, you know, a memory that he'll have for the rest of his life, that kid. Yeah. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it's a it's a home and away game for us that doesn't really, meet, you know, in the grand scheme of things doesn't really mean that much. And, yeah. you know, good, 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 good for him to have that moment. But, yeah, hopefully in a, in a final situation, it's reversed. Before you go, Vince, I'm actually going to throw the final thought to you first before I throw it to Jono. And you're going to have this without notice, but uh, some of the postings of the North Melbourne Twitter Twitter feed this week. Um, true or false? The Essendon North rivalry is real. Vince, what are your thoughts? Nah, nah. The only thing I can think of is the massive defeats that our sides have inflicted upon North Melbourne over the last few decades. And there's there's very little rivalry, uh, I think real rivalry. I think that North Melbourne would like to be rivals with someone, but it's not us. We're um we're their bogey. There's no doubt about that. Awesome. Thanks, Vince. Cheers, guys. Well, Jono, Thanks, you, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, it, it's real for me. Uh, I've got two stories, mate, I, I'll, I'll share to, to close out. So in 2002, uh, this is going back a, a little while, but... We just um, reopened, or at the start of the home and away season, we we just reopened our training facilities and, and the gym at Windy Hill, and the brand new auditorium. So so they they were locked to the players for most of the preseason, and and you know the club had invested a fair bit of money to upgrade those. And we played North in in round ten, and you know Sheeds, the two coaches that Sheeds always wanted to beat was Malthouse and Pagan, regardless of where they were, and. and so I guess at least from a, a Sheedy era um, perspective, North Melbourne, Essendon rivalry was really, really real. And, and we played them in round 10. We were third on the ladder at the time. I think they were ninth or 10th. And Sheeds actually sent myself and a couple of other guys down to North Melbourne to break into their facilities with a video camera and film, take footage of their ground and their gym down at Arden Street. So we, we snuck in there one night in the week. And our um, our video presentation before what's now called the captain's run, the sort of the last training session before the game, was that footage to show the players, you know, how the fact the Chiefs' message was you spoilt being at Essendon. Look at what they've got. Look at what we've got uh, in comparison. So you know that was put on display in, in the big auditorium at, down at Windy Hill, and. Uh, we ended up losing the game by eight points, I think. So it didn't really work. Uh, so that one, and and then obviously the, I mean, it was prior to that. It was back in ninety, uh, was it ninety eight? The marshmallow game. Uh, so oh, I walked, yeah. I walked around the boundary line uh, about uh, forty meters behind Sheeds and and David Collins, and I myself got pelted with marshmallows too. And and the thing that annoys me the most is not uh, is not getting hit with marshmallows, but on all the footage that we still see years and years afterwards is I'm cut out of it. So it was my big moment to get some good TV time and go down in footy folklore and I missed out. So, yeah, look, it, it's real for me, but but because those kind of memories still live large in in how I feel about Essendon and, and North Melbourne. Build a bridge, yeah. Walshy, build a bridge. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try, mate, I'll try. That's all right. I think... what, sorry, you hear me? Oh, I was just going to say, I think the statute of limitations has passed on breaking and entering into Arden Street as well. So I think you're safe to share that story. 
Yeah, well, to be fair, we we didn't cut any locks or anything. We just jumped over the race and, and you could see what you could see from there. And, and we had the camera on a bit of a stick. So, yeah, we I don't think we technically broke any laws. But uh, if there's any yeah, Victoria police uh, listening, I, yeah, uh, I apologise. <laughs> awesome. Well, big, big thanks to everyone uh, for listening and, and interacting with us during the week. It makes it, uh, you know, makes dealing with it with a loss like that you know a lot easier when you you've got such really good you know conversation and and opinions from from everyone you hear from uh big shout out to everyone who's who's listened live it's, it seems like most people have, have stuck around to listen to us uh yammer on for for an hour so uh, hopefully that means we're doing something right and it's not just you know white noise for people to go to have an early sleep uh any final any final words from you Jono? No, just uh, thanks to you again, mate. I appreciate all the effort that you put in to, to make this happen every week. It's uh, yeah, it's it, it's been awesome. So yeah, hopefully we can get a big win this week and uh, have lots of interesting things to talk about next week. Absolutely, go Dons. Cheers, mate.